This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, I'm Helen Lewis, Associate Editor of the New Statesman, and welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Jamie Suskin, the author of Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. Hello, Jamie. Hi. So let's just set you up in context before we start. You've um, been researching a book that's about what you call the digital life world. You're also a barrister. So you're kind of coming at it from a, a legal perspective, a perspective about what we should do in terms of regulation. But there's also a kind of philosophical argument behind this book. So can you just set it up for us, what your kind of premise that you were trying to interrogate is? The book is about how technology is changing the way we live together. And the main thesis of it is that we don't have the words and the concepts to describe it yet, that the world is changing faster than we're able to understand it, and that words like democracy, liberty, freedom, justice, and power, which meant different things in the past, are not going to mean the same in the future. And the main thesis of the book is that technology is radically changing the dynamics of power within society, and that those who control the most important technologies will increasingly control the rest of us. And I think that's going to be the main political question that we're going to have to deal with in this generation. So let's talk about some of those technologies um, in turn. The one that probably gets the most attention in a kind of Terminator sense is uh, AI and and machine learning and the idea of built into that about the algorithms that that govern our, our world. Are you one of those people that thinks that AI is a kind of an unstoppable force or are you in the camp of people who believe that essentially they will always be kind of slightly dumb that they will always need programming by by humans they will always reflect human biases you know is is there a you know how how worried are you about those questions about algorithms so for a long time people saw artificial intelligence as programming computers to do things that humans could do by teaching them a set of instructions laying down a set of rules the most exciting and prominent form of AI that's under development just now is called machine learning, where instead of humans teaching machines rules, in a sense, they learn them themselves. 
So if a thing looks like X, it's likely to be a Y. Or when the road turns right, I should turn the car to the right if it's a, a machine learning algorithm controlling a self-driving car. And the way that they do that is that they churn through enormous amounts of data, and with more or less human intervention, they draw the relevant patterns. The reason people find that unnerving is because sometimes the machines learn and do things that their human programmers didn't anticipate. They spot patterns that the humans themselves were unable to see. Right now, we're not in a world of AI systems that are achieving consciousness or creativity or anything close to it. They can replicate the results of those things, but we're not yet in a world of artificial general intelligence, which mimics the kind of intelligence that human beings have. Now, for various reasons, I don't think that matters. I think the political implications of what we're currently developing are staggering enough that we need to pay attention to it. But uh, I think I fall somewhere halfway, halfway between the, the radical and the skeptical camps when it comes to what we're currently training machines to do. I was really struck by that example about um, chess playing. And actually, if people start making really very, quote unquote, creative moves, then actually that's a sign that they're, they're cheating. And um, I think it was AlphaGo, the DeepMind's AI, when it was playing the game, Go won one of the matches by playing a, a move that no one had anticipated, no one saw coming at all. And actually, that's the kind of interesting thing is that in some very limited domains already, AI has obviously moved beyond our intelligence. It does things that no human can do. But a robot robotics expert once said to me, the thing is robots are brilliant at doing, you know, fantastically complicated things, but they're terrible at doing the things that a one-year-old can do. Yes, there's a couple of things to unpack there. First of all, the AlphaGo is an interesting example because the the version that you referred to that played that extraordinary move against Lee Sedol was actually one that had been partially trained by human beings. Google has subsequently developed a version of AlphaGo which learned how to play Go without any human beings involved at all. It simply played against itself an enormous number of times. And that machine is several orders of magnitude more powerful than the one that beat Lisa Doll. And so that example itself is a good uh, indicator of the way the machine learning is moving, that increasingly very powerful systems with enough processing power can do things that we might have thought unthinkable. Robotics is different from artificial intelligence. There's a paradox in robotics. It's called Moravec's paradox. And without boldlerizing it too much, basically what it means is that it's much harder to do sensory motor tasks than it is to do intelligent tasks. Mm. Um, and so that is why when we try to build robots that move like human beings, they look a bit funny. And you wouldn't trust a robot to trim your beard or pluck your eyebrows because um, something awful would happen. You're right. But uh, robotics might not look in the future like it does today. Increasingly, there's all kinds of new materials and textures and soft robotics and stuff that doesn't look like the robotics that we grew up with in films and in fiction. But one of the things that I think you bring out really well in the book is the idea that AI, because it's so good at making decisions, but actually sometimes we don't want the rational decision. We don't, but actually there needs to be some capacity for humans to be irrational. And you talk about the example of someone 
trying to commit, commit suicide and their self-driving car won't reverse over them. And I mean, it's a, it's a kind of awful example, but it's one of those things about, you know, actually, um, I hate using this phrase, but if you had much more implemented widespread AI that was integrated into the political system, you do, I mean, it's kind of the, na- the nanny state is nothing compared to the AI nanny state. What I find interesting about that example is that increasingly decisions of life or death, and if not of life or death, of, of freedom or unfreedom, are left to the technologies that we exercise those freedoms through. So what that really means is that decisions are up to the corporate policies of the companies that manufacture those technologies. And I I use the phrase digital paternalism to describe a form of technology that tries to influence your behavior in a certain way, albeit for your benefit, perhaps even against your will, even if you're a conscious, rational adult who wants to to do something that the technology thinks would be bad for you. And that can be in the moral sphere as well, should technologies and the companies that build them allow you to do immoral things with them. Imagine a self-driving car that won't drive to a particular establishment because it's somewhere where terrible things happen, or a virtual reality machine that won't allow you to explore your sexual fantasies because they're considered depraved by society's standards. The point is... Not that we should or shouldn't be allowed to do all of this stuff, but that increasingly what I would call political decisions are being taken by companies. I think that's one of the things that comes across very strongly in the book. And when you talk to people at some of the big tech companies, and there are really, when we talk about tech companies in this sense, we're talking about a a handful of them, right? There are just some ones, Apple being one, Google, Facebook, Amazon. You know, there are some absolute beer moths involved. And then in in China, Baidu and and, uh, and other ones that are specifically um, country specific. They have ended up, particularly, I would say, Google and Facebook, with a huge amount of power that they didn't really ever ask for. They don't now particularly want or know what to do with. And a kind of essentially lots of things that would have perhaps been decided by politicians 10 years ago are now being decided by a handful of people on a board somewhere or a founder of a company. I think it's a development of profound political significance, possibly the most important in our lifetime. What we have is these bodies that have acquired a kind of power that is quite different even from the great monopolies and great enterprises of the past, and people often harken back to Rockefeller and the like. The reason that technology companies are so powerful is that technology itself tends to exert power over us in in one of three ways, or at least one of three ways. The first is by submitting, making us submit to the rules of the technology itself. So if you're in a self-driving car and it won't drive over the speed limit and it won't park illegally and it will automatically pull over for a police car, that's quite different from living in a world where you can choose to drive over the speed limit, you can choose to park illegally, you can easily, cho- you can e- even choose to speed away from the police car and suffer the consequences of it later. So sometimes technology exerts a kind of force over us. It takes away choices. Sometimes technology controls our perception of the world, and I think this is one that we're all increasingly conscious of. The world is filtered by technology. What we see beyond our immediate experience is usually being gathered by algorithms sorted and presented to us in a form that um, is determined by algorithms which we have very little understanding of. Now, for those who still get their news from TV, that might seem like a quaint concept, but we're moving towards a world where increasingly news is gathered, generated, and disseminated digitally in an automated fashion. 
And if you control people's perception of the world, if you control what they know, what they see, what you can in turn control how they feel towards particular groups, towards other people. And to me, that's the essence of politics. If something is taken off the agenda because it doesn't appear on your Twitter timeline or on the news as you read it, then what better way to reduce the political importance of that topic? And the third way that technologies exert power over us is through watching us. Technologies gather information about us in a manner that our predecessors, our forebears on this planet would have found unimaginable. Every act, every word, every journey, increasingly every emotion, more and more these facts about our life are being gathered as data and stored in permanent or semi-permanent form and then made available for processing. And increasingly, knowing that we are being watched, knowing that data has been gathered about us, itself has a kind of disciplinary effect. We do, we are less likely to do things that we perceive as sinful, shameful, or wrong. And so through one of these three means, the kind of force, the sort of perception control, or by gathering data and scrutinizing us, technologies exert power in a very direct way. And that's unprecedented. And most of them are in the hands of private corporations. Can I try on a couple of the questions that um, that I find people kind of increasingly end up asking? One of which is, should this kind of power be in the hands of private companies at all? Um, we talk, uh, The book talks about net neutrality, about this idea of, of, you know, having to try and enforce the idea that, you know, some things are just public goods um, and, and therefore need to be pre- preserved and everybody needs to have equal access to them. And the way that often gets framed is, um, should we nationalise Facebook? People are right to ask how we can take back control of the technology, of the power that technology gives enormous tech companies. But the point can also be overstated. I don't think we need to necessarily elect the board of Facebook or take democratic decisions as to what the content of Google's algorithm should be. As a general rule in political philosophy, looking back over time, What humans have tended to try to do is establish a level of accountability that is proportionate to the power that's wielded over them. And so that might mean with a very powerful tech company that there should be a higher degree of scrutiny and a higher degree of regulation potentially. And with the less powerful ones, your little startups, less so. The point is that just because these companies aren't states doesn't mean they should just be permitted willy-nilly to exert power over people. Humans, since the, the... at least the Greek times, have not, without more, accepted the authority of those who establish power over them without trying to establish some degree of answerability. It doesn't have to be full democracy but, or, or, or full ownership in the, in, in the, in the terms of nationalisation, but it probably has to be something. The next one is something I think The Economist asked a couple of weeks ago, which is, should you be paid for your data? I mean, you talk about the fact that companies are hoovering up huge amounts of data on us. Um, Google and uh, Facebook are primarily advertising businesses, and the reason they're such good and lucrative advertising businesses is because of the the profiles that they, they hold on their users. Uh, we know Facebook you know, buys extra data from sort of mortgage lenders and things like that to, to supplement what it already has it, itself. But you write in the book about the kind of the data deal, and and I think there's a great statistic which is very thought provoking, which is that if you shared out Facebook's t- because it's got nearly two billion users now, or maybe it has actually got two billion users, Facebook's 2015 profit shared between all of them, you'd get three pounds fifty each. So we're not talking about kind of this is a kind of this is the way this is a kind of universal basic income as we all get paid for our data. But as a sort of fundamental principle, are we giving away something valuable without 
you know, we're getting the service in return, but is that actually a really a fair trade? I take a slightly different view on this from a lot of people, and I don't principally see it as an economic question, a question of social justice. In principle, I don't mind giving my data away in order to get awesome services in response, tailored, customized, efficient, personalized platforms that have made life incredibly interesting and more fun and more dynamic for people in the last couple of decades. I don't actually think that's a bad deal, particularly when you consider the actual economics of it, as you just described. What does concern me is what companies do with our data without our knowing. And that might mean repackaging it and selling it on so that through the means that I described earlier, those or other companies are able to exert power or to manipulate subtly or to, at the very least, influence us in ways that are both unknown and and currently unknowable. And so I'm more concerned with the political, the power implications of giving away all our data than I am with the economic implications of it. What I would also say is that a lot of people who believe in social justice, what they say is that you shouldn't receive an enormous amount of wealth for something that is effectively unearned. And I think that applies to data as well. It might be because of who you are. Your data is worth a lot more than my data. And so it gets used 10 times more than mine. And so you get richer than I do. I don't see that as a fundamentally fairer way of organizing capitalism because you might not deserve it in any moral or other economic sense. So... I think we can get a bit caught up on the economics of it. And I think we should focus a little more, in my view, on the on the, on the questions of freedom and power and democracy that come from it. Well, you talk in the book about this idea of the, the wealth cyclone and, uh, and the way that there's a concentration of inequality because of, uh, of the way that, that tech works. Can you explain that a little bit more? The wealth cyclone is something that I fear and imagine might happen in the future. And it's basically the, the confluence of a few different trends. The first is the big Thomas Piketty one, which is basically that it pays more to own stuff than to do stuff increasingly. So those who own capital get a greater return um, than those who work for a living, taken very, very broadly. That's factor number one. Factor number two is that if people are right about technological unemployment, that is to say that certain technologies will increasingly supplant the the work of human beings then those who own those technologies, themselves a form of capital, are increasingly likely to have more of society's wealth flow to them, while those who work for a living are are going to have even less of society's wealth flowing to them. Added to which, a third factor, which is that tech companies of the kinds that own the sort of capital I'm describing increasingly don't employ very many people. So I think when Facebook um, bought WhatsApp... There were only 55 employees at WhatsApp. And that's very different from the old car companies in Detroit or the old factories of the 19th century where they had a lot of money, but they also employed a lot of people. And the final factor is network effects. Increasingly, economic activity is conducted on these hyper-mobile, hyper-febrile networks, which reward those who have more members or more subscribers disproportionately to the number of subscribers. That is to say, I could create tomorrow a form of social networking site that was better than Facebook in every way, functionally, looks better, feels better. But if it only is me and my mum as members, then no one's going to want to join it. 
It's the number of members that matters. So when you combine all of those things, the growing importance of capital, the growing importance of technologies that take people's jobs, the fact that tech companies employ fewer and fewer people, and network effects, without any kind of intervention, what you have is a world where increasingly wealth funnels to the very, very small number of people who own and control the most valuable capital and the most valuable technologies. Now, it's a bit of a caricature. It, I'm sure there's lots that economists could say about it. But those four trends that I describe are definitely recognized um, phenomena, albeit not un uncontroversial, each of them. And unless we keep an eye on it, I think inequality will only grow. And presumably uh, equally a big challenge to democracy if you take, you know, the size of some of these companies are, you know, bigger than quite a lot of countries' economies, right? There's a famous stat about Apple having more cash reserves than the US Fed, right? Um, and they're largely based in America, the ones that we're talking about. But in terms of getting data from them, in terms of getting them to comply with UK law, if you want them to hand over data, that's very complicated because they are operating in some kind of, well, and, and for tax reasons, often they're operating in some kind of international uh, space as well. And that's a profound challenge to democracy and politicians in any one country, right? I think that's quite right. I think any system of norms and regulation should, as far as possible, be an international one. I'm very forlorn when I say that because I think the world is moving in the opposite direction. I mean, technology is one of many challenges that demand a global response that we're increasingly finding ourselves less able to deal with. Um, but you're, you're essentially right. That, of course, assumes, though, that the way that you make tech companies accountable is through the traditional mechanism of the nation state or of supranational organizations. I, I think it's a fair assumption, but perhaps in the future there will be better ways of regulating our relationship with tech companies, more direct as between you, the consumer, or you, the user, and the tech company itself, which doesn't necessarily immediately require regulation from a, a state overlord. Mm, that's really that's interesting to me because I always feel that the power of the individual user versus the network effect, the boosted network effect is, I mean, I, I recently came off Facebook because I decided it was, it had turned into sort of a weird chore. Um, I felt like I pretty much understood, you know, if I never need to write a story about Facebook, I now understand the concept of Facebook. It's not like in the, uh, you know, 10 years ago when you needed to feel that you went on every new social network because you otherwise you couldn't write about them without understanding their, their appeal to people. But, you know, I, if I want to renegotiate the terms of my engagement with Facebook, I have exactly zero power. If I say to them, actually, I would prefer to pay a subscription rather than you using my data, I have exactly zero power. So I, like you, feel extremely bleak when I think about our withdrawal from the European Union, which, to its credit, is one of the few bodies that has tried to take on the might of the, the tech companies. And, you know, when you look at the state of governance in America, where, you know, it, no, I mean, physical infrastructure in America is, is already in, in a complete state, never mind people trying to kind of impose more regulations on, on companies operating in the digital sphere. But are there any politicians you look at who really get this? Do you feel any, where, where's, do you have any optimism about, about this stuff? I have, I have lots of optimism. I, I mean, I, I think when we talk about this stuff, we should never forget how positive an effect that a lot of technology has had on our lives, making our lives more dignified, more fun, more exciting, more varied. Um, my life in the last two decades would have been incredibly different from when we got our first internet connection in my house as a boy to when I got my first smartphone in 2008, 2009. And we're very quick at adapting to all the fun stuff and complaining about the bad stuff. So I wouldn't want to forget about that. And there's also a whole host of groups and individuals who stand to benefit from the wonders of technology, be it 
marginalised groups potentially or disabled persons or even less well-off people if the technology is managed properly and fairly in the interests of society. I would also say that I share your, your sense of impotence, as we all do as individuals in the face of big tech companies, but ultimately we are their customers, we are their consumers, and just... There are those who suggest that we should have data unions like the trade unions of the past where individual u- users gang together and demand change from the, the sources of power. There's an interesting principle at play there, which is actually we vote with our feet. And I suspect that the noises we've heard from Facebook in the last six months are partly as a result of a threat of regulation, although there's none seriously in the offing just now, but also partly as a result of a sense of a widespread change in norms and people's attitudes towards Facebook. And it's all very fluffy. It's all very long term. But this is really what my book is about, which is that we for too long, at least 10 years, have principally seen ourselves as consumers and seen technology as any other kind of consumer good. But I say the digital is political. And as soon as people wake up and start paying attention to the fact that really the main factors that control their freedom, their place in society, the health of the democracy in which they live in are technological factors. I hope that people will demand change. Well, let's come back to that. But for now, we'll just take a short pause. I'm back with Jamie Suskin, author of Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. We talked before the break a little bit about people kind of rising up or becoming more politically aware and aware of the repercussions of this. One of the things you talk about that I thought was really interesting was about the sort of physical manifestations of democracy and how they might change about direct democracy. And this phrase liquid democracy, which I, I found, I, I, yeah, I, I liked the sound of that, mostly because it sounded like you could get drunk. But it's, hmm. that's not what it means. Can you tell me what it means? Well, the big point is that Scribbling a tick or a cross on a ballot paper every four years is not the only way to do democracy. It might still be the best way, who knows, but it's incumbent on us to ask whether the technologies that we've unleashed and that have radically transformed every other aspect of our life might be able to transform democracy a bit. Now, the phrase liquid democracy isn't mine, and um, but, but what it refers to is a form of democracy where basically uh, if you vote digitally by means of say an app on your phone or something like that you can delegate your vote on a particular issue to other people who you feel might know that issue better than you so if there's a planning application put in for your local area you might give your vote to a local consortium of architects or on a question concerning the national health service you might delegate your vote to a group of nurses or doctors or patient interest groups um It's just one idea, one little manifestation of how technology is increasingly being used by political parties in other countries, not in ours, to change what it means to have a vote. And are you worried about the rise of what some people have called uh, illiberal democracy, which is the idea that you have, uh, I think some, you know, Hungary and Poland might be kind of classic examples at the moment, places which are functional to the extent... Uh, that their citizens expect, but they are—they're not increasing their the amount of liberty that citizens have, and the way that actually you could foresee a society in which 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 functions and actually algorithms run it uh, with a great degree of precision and maybe even you know, better than we kind of have now, but in, in which the, actually the choice and freedom has been eroded. Does that sometimes you like a, a dystopia that seems a likely one? 
it's certainly one that people are indirectly contending for, whether they know it or not. I mean, I think I wouldn't want listeners to think that I, for instance, am an advocate of direct democracy, which is technically feasible in the in the relatively short term, where what it would mean is that, you know, through an app on our phone, we or some kind of delegated other person, or in, in the future, perhaps an, an AI who, who knows our preferences, could vote on five or 10 different issues a day. Um, the local park, through to tax policy. And every issue could be a referendum, could automate politics. And if you listen to the rhetoric of some I think on the hard left, you hear a sort of, well, it's always a matter for the people or uh, it's a matter for the, for the party or for the members or whatever it is that people like to say. And I, and I think the formulation that you just articulated, which Yasha Monk talks about a lot in his book uh, of illiberal democracy is an interesting one because it harkens right back to the Greeks. In, in ancient Greece, if everyone voted on something, that was the end of it. They voted that you were to die, you died, just like Socrates did. Or if they voted that you would be ostracized, you'd be kicked out of the the city on pain of death. Liberal democracy means that there are, it is actually less people power. Human rights protect you even when the mob is baying for your blood. Um, the rule of law means that even if 90% of the people support a certain policy, as until it becomes law, it may not it may not be enacted. And certainly I agree with you that there's a growth in, I think, unthinking belief that more democracy in every area of life is always better that that certainly hasn't been the belief throughout most of human history at least since the greek times and if you marry that to what technology could possibly enable in the next five or ten years i think it can be incredibly dangerous well talk me tell me a bit more about what you think technology could enable because i mean i'm uh, as a journalist i'm always thinking about what I think of as the kind of information architecture of the internet and how I think that is a problem for democracy because we know that there is you know, a fairly strong filter bubble on, on things like uh, Facebook. We know that um, I would say that YouTube's algorithm has been in the past an instrument of extremism and extremification because it kind of, someone says, you know, you're, you're watching videos about vegetarianism and then you get veganism and then you get, you know, it, it, everything gets more extreme in order to hook your attention. That's a the, the downside of an attention economy, but you know, where do you what, what what are the developments we should be looking out for? I think you've hit the nail on the head. The two main tenets of modern democracy are voting, which we've just discussed, which you know, technology could could make a whole lot easier and a whole lot more issues, and deliberation. How do we, as a society, process the information that's available to us and use it to make good decisions? And by and large, in the last couple of hundred years. The trend has been to place faith in the ability of the people through deliberation of some form or other in the public sphere to reach wise or generally wise outcomes. Now, you've identified some of the problems that what I would call the early internet has caused us. Filter bubbles, extremification, um, if that's even a word. It is now. It is now. You heard it here first. And the attention economy, right? This is the idea that everything has to be – because it's so fundamentally run on advertising revenue that everything is about attention. And what gets most attention? Well, it's outrage, it's shock, it's, you know, it's the, the screaming. Quite. And increasingly, statistical techniques allow each of us to be targeted with a different political message on our social media streams than the rest of us. So you, you might get political adverts that paint an entirely different – 
picture of the situation than the ones that I do. And that's quite profound. I mean, society has always to a certain extent been divided, you know, which newspapers you read, which TV channel you watch, but we're more disintegrated than ever. Than ever. Unfortunately, I actually think this is one of the areas where there's most cause for alarm. And, it's, and it goes back to one of the things we talked about right at the beginning of this discussion, which is artificial intelligence. Just a couple of weeks ago, a bot was a chat bot, which is a sort of disembodied AI, was said to have completed um, medical exams better than, I think it was the average student. Mm. You already have chatbots that take orders in restaurants. You already have systems that can automate the creation of political speeches. This technology is in its infancy, also in its infancy, but rapidly improving our technologies, which are capable of reading and sensing our emotions, and also not just appearing as disembodied text, as chatbots often do, but as physical uh, human appearing faces. What this means is that we're moving into a world where, you know, well within our lifetime, you will have systems that can look like human beings on your screen, sound like human beings, respond to you like human beings, argue with you, potentially like very unreasonable human beings, and argue with each other, and you have this potential world where you've got the automation of deliberation itself, where on the negative side, you'd say, well, how can we possibly maintain a public debate in a world where every time you say something, 50,000 bots are there to shout you down and not just shout you down, but make clever, witty interventions which show why you're wrong or stupid. On the other hand, you might ask, well, if these robots are so good at arguing, why don't we just leave it to them and see what they come up with? The point being, deliberation itself, which has been such a central part of our idea of democracy, it faces much greater threats than fake news. And inevitably, in the short term, who controls the best bots will control public discourse. I was astounded by Google recently did that demonstration of uh, voice chatbots and they have now got them to a stage where they can do little hesitations and ums and ahs and, and they played one phoning up a, a restaurant and it kind of went, oh well uh, I'll, uh, I'll have a table for seven o'clock and it, it had that phrase it had the, the rhythm of, of, of normal speech and it didn't look the way that I guess the verbal version of the visual problem of the uncanny valley where it was just so close to human speech but not human speech that it it seemed even more wrong, actually. It was just completely plausible. Um, and that more, just as interesting, I thought, was the way that Google demonstrated it, th- thinking everyone was going to go, oh, my God, Google, you guys are so amazing. I mean, which it is. As a, as a technological feat, it's incredible. But people were really freaked out by it and said, well, are you, uh, are they, you know, are these chatbots going to identify themselves as, as chatbots? Indeed. Uh, and <laughs> eventually, might they identify themselves as proudly as chatbots, but as kind of superior in the respects which, you know, I'm describing. I'm not saying that they'll have moral autonomy or anything like that, but uh, machines can already tell whether human beings are lying better than humans can by reading their bodily signals. Machines can tell whether a child is next to his or her mother better than humans can just by glancing at their body language. And the thing that I'd emphasize is that we're just at the infancy here. I mean, these technologies have been around for just a few years. In the grand sweep of human history, in the grand arc of democracy, this is brand new. And 
You're right. They're giving us knowledge that perhaps we don't necessarily want, given that I think that all of society proceeds on a huge layer of little white lies, people not really saying what they mean, people deliberately ignoring things that don't suit them so that they can kind of get on with their lives. There's another interesting example as well about, which is kind of framed as, should you say thank you to your Alexa? And that's an, an interesting thing when there's been talk about particularly where children, uh, young children are using uh, household you know, robots and things like Alexa. Do you teach them to say please and thank you? Do you teach them to treat? Because they can't necessarily differentiate between, you know, is there a little person in the machine or not? That actually, should we all be trying to keep up politeness norms when we interact with AIs? I think that's a really hard question. It, it's, a fa- it's a fascinating question. Again, sometimes uh, I think it crowds out... It, <laughs> It's a little bit of a check your privilege question. Um, I mean, a lot of the book I spend talking about the risks, not of us disrespecting robots, but of robots disrespecting us. And I mean, and it literally already happens. There are soap dispensers, automated soap dispensers, which won't dispense soap to people of color because they've been trained on exclusively white hands. There are voice recognition systems that literally can't hear women because they've been trained exclusively by men. There are beauty contests said to be neutral, um, decided by algorithm, which invariably return white victors because they've been only trained on white faces. And so it used to be that only other human beings could disrespect us. But increasingly, we're going to be surrounded by these systems that we rely on on a day-to-day basis that can disrespect us as well. And think how angry you get when your computer these days when it freezes. Now imagine being treated in a racist way or in a sexist way or just being ignored or overruled um, by a machine. In the kind of medium term and short term, that's what I see as the great sort of uh, politics of recognition question when it comes to tech. I mean, I just saw a story. It's it's actually a fairly old story. It's a guy in New Zealand of Asian extraction who sent in his passport photo to New Zealand's swanky automated passport photo processing system, and it rejected it because it said that his eyes were closed. Again, a system where maybe the algorithm was fine, but it had been the initial algorithm, but it had been trained on data, on faces, human faces uh, that weren't Asian. I think there's so many examples like that. I mean, all if you talk about AI personal assistants. By and large, they are female. And that's because the current way that we see them is as secretaries and we want our secretaries to be female. They have classically through literature. I think there was a, an interesting example when someone made a lawyer AI and then mysteriously that one was, was had a male coded voice. Um, and there are, you know, uh, again, I talked to a roboticist who said, I don't think we should make humanoid robots. I just don't think that we should do that because we're going to start projecting all of our assumptions, all of our biases onto that much more when we see them as being, you know, they shouldn't have a gender and they shouldn't have a kind of physical form. That's that's a very hard thing to do when we read gender so much from from voice. But you're right, the, the examples of ag- algorithmic bias are horrifying and they also reflect something else, which is we talked more about the concentration of power in these couple of tech companies, the lack of diversity in the people who are making those decisions. You know, you're by and large talking about, it is an example Unicode, uh, the consortium which decides what new emoji that we have, is run by essentially I think twenty tech companies and the representatives thereof, and uh, they're you know those are companies which are heavily dominated by white men. Um, and so I'm um, surprisingly emoji, you know, have all these weird biases, but they took them for until last year to put in a woman in a hijab, for example. Um, it took for a long time for them to put in different skin tones. Um, and I think that's something that's, that's, you know, that's coded into language itself, which is the argument you make in the book that one of the reasons the power of tech companies is so 
awe-inspiring is because they have the capacity to shape our experience of reality and, and the way that that's mediated through themselves in a way that, yeah, like a car company just could not do. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the problem of diversity is a huge one and everyone knows it and uh, hopefully we're taking steps to sort it out, but it seems to me that it's a generational problem. There's also a bit of a problem, and here obviously I reveal my prejudice, that the arc of a computer science degree is long, but it doesn't bend towards justice. That is to say, most software engineers, well-meaning though they are, don't know or fully appreciate the moral implications of their work. And just to take probably the most famous example... A lot of people think that the way to remedy algorithmic injustice that we've just been talking about is to make algorithms neutral. So Google's search algorithm, for instance, is said to work by if you search for a term, then what the search results you get will faithfully reproduce the search results that other people have clicked on when they themselves searched for that term. And what Google would say is, well, that algorithm just reflects people. It just reflects people's usage, and that's how it's useful. But what it means is that if you search for the phrase, why do Jews, then Google will autofill your search, you know, why do Jews have big noses? Or if you type in the name of a a typically African-American name, it will come up with searches for criminal background checks. And so, you know, a lot of even well-meaning engineers would say, but I don't understand, we created a neutral algorithm. But the problem with neutrality is that it reproduces injustices that already exist in the world. That is to say that people have prejudices against Jewish people and black people or whatever else it is. And so one of the really radical ideas that I try to argue for in the book is that algorithms shouldn't just be neutral, but if you care about social justice, then software engineering and social engineering become the same thing. That is to say, you should engineer your algorithms not to reflect the injustices that already exist, exist in society, but to correct them, to remedy them subtly, to try and create outcomes that are better than the inputs. And that's just one example of the way that I think that if we really really engage with technology and its, its social potential, you could actually make the world a better place rather than a worse one. But I think that's that will inevitably run into something that you, you do mention in the book, which is questions about free speech. Um, and actually, I think most people's assumption about Silicon Valley and its ideology is that it's full of liberals. I wouldn't say that was necessarily entirely true. There were very uh, influential high-up figures such as you know, Peter Thiel, who's an early angel investor in Facebook, who are much more, I would say, libertarians. You know, they are, you know, their 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 leanings is much more towards the right. I think Peter Thiel has talked about founding an island in the sea to get around labour laws. You know, this is not a kind of bleeding heart liberal in the British sense, certainly, but. That's going to be an incredibly contested political terrain, isn't it? Because why they cling to neutrality is the idea that, gov, it's just the algorithm, we don't do anything to it. And and it's like the argument about whether or not they're, you know, Facebook is a platform or a publisher. It's set, it, it, once you're a tech company and you concede that your decisions are political, they then get fought over and contested and everybody wants to come in and have an opinion. Quite right. And you, it's the major political challenge of our generation is that, Big tech companies will characterize themselves first and foremost as corporate entities pursuing private profit within what the law permits them to do. My argument is if things continue the way they're going and tech companies acquire a degree of power that is more than what we would typically expect of a private corporation that can fundamentally affect our democracy or our freedom or our justice – then 
they shouldn't just be allowed to do it willy-nilly. And it goes again back to something we discussed right at the beginning, which is that we don't really have the words to argue it yet. And tech companies will very skillfully say, we're not a publisher. Well, publisher is an old word. Pub- the word publisher doesn't really describe what they are. Probably platform doesn't really describe what they are either. And you can skillfully use old laws and old words to try and fit yourself into convenient categories that stop you from having power being held to account. Now, look, I, I don't want to sound like I want to be nationalizing tech companies or regulating all of them because my book really is about the future. It's looking for five or 10 or 20 years into the future and saying, where are we headed? But that is where we are headed. We are headed to a world where more and more private institutions have power over us. And the question is whether we're going to accept it or not. Well, the one final question then is, what do you want people to take away from the book? What do you think that they should, you know, if you, once someone's read your book, what do you think they need to, at that point, go out and do? What are we advocating for? Nothing can happen. No progress can be made until there is a change in the way that societies interact with their technology. We have to stop seeing it as just as consumers. The stuff that you have on your desk or in your pocket, or increasingly it'll be in your clothes, in your homes, in your architecture, in our public spaces. The digital is political, and we have to treat it with the same civic, polite, rigorous scepticism that we've always treated great concentrations of power. Because if we don't, then the things that we've fought hard to win against the tyrannies of states, of conquerors, of our own human limitations and of disease and of ignorance will get the better of us and we'll lose all the things that we've fought so hard for. So just because you can pay for something and buy it or subscribe to it, or even if you get it free, like Facebook, doesn't mean that you shouldn't turn a quizzical eye to it. And my view is that the more people who do that, the more that progress will be made. Well, your book is both rigorous and sceptical. It's also a really fascinating read about, I think you're right, the defining kind of political question of our our time. And it is future politics, living together in a world transformed by tech. And that was Jamie Suskind. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.